And go ahead when you've got your seats and turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 21. We are presently in a series on Exodus. For those that are new to Sovereign Grace or visiting, we have been in it for about, well, I think nearly a year already, and we're only to chapter 21. We're going through the book section by section and having a wonderful time doing it. And having examined the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, we're now in chapter 21, 22, and 23, looking at the Constitution or the Book of the Covenant. How do these commandments play out in real-life Israel and real-life Jewish law. And what you'll discover with this passage today is this is part of the reason why we preach expositionally and exegetically, because you will have probably never, ever, ever heard a message on this before. And neither have I. (laughs) But there's some great stuff in it. We're going to read together from Exodus chapter 21, verse 12, all the way to, to 22, 15. Let's examine God's word. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from, the, from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes, the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, Wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. When a man opens a pit... And when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also shall share, they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, 
He shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds on another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing, of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything of his, of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. Oh my word. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. And Lord, I truly believe that every word of it is written by you and for our good. Lord, did you help us to see what's really going on here? Would it open before our eyes and would it cause us to worship you all the more? That's what this points to, the glory of you. Help me, Lord, by your grace. Amen. You know, for all of us, there are times in our lives where somewhat unavoidably, we get stuck in conversations that quite simply seem to have no relevance to us whatsoever. Happens to me all the time. I was just at an event for foster carers a couple of weeks ago. One of the ladies came up to me and it was really awkward. She was standing there, literally there. I know her a tiny amount. She starts talking to me. So I instantaneously, because she's standing there, move backwards. It doesn't make any difference. She's there. And she starts talking to me and she's getting up close. And she's talking to me about things that are totally irrelevant. They had nothing to do with my life. And I'm sure we've all experienced that at different times when people are yakking on at you and you realize this has nothing to do with me at all and I'm trying to get away, but you just keep following me. Well, in so many ways, I think when we gather around this text, we can feel that we're in one of those conversations. What on earth has this got to do with me? I mean, the world being described here is very different from our own. It's a world of slaves, a world of donkeys, a world of oxen. Not aware that anybody came to church this morning on the back of an oxen. So you can already start to feel like this is quite distant from my life. Likewise, these laws can appear somewhat harsh. The death penalty is fully operating. Here in Australia, we don't have the death penalty. 
And so we can once again feel quite removed from from this text. And likewise, if we're honest, these rules can seem somewhat outdated. It describes the Jewish civil law three and a half thousand years ago. So great for three and a half thousand years ago, but what on earth does this text have to do with me? But in actual fact, when you slow down on this conversation and listen in a bit more carefully to this text, you start to realize that surprisingly, and yet wonderfully, this text is relevant to absolutely every one of us in the room. It has things, even this bit, to say to each and every one of us in the room. So I have three points this morning as we seek to get into it and unpack it. Number one, understanding the laws themselves. If you can't understand the laws, we ain't going to get nothing out of it. Number two, what can we learn from these laws today? And I want to help you see there's a lot we can learn. There's not much we can learn necessarily from the detail, but when you look at the big idea and the themes, you realize there's a lot that we can learn three and a half thousand years on. And then finally, number three, how should we respond? Even this text requires a response for us. It is alive. It speaks to us. There's things in it that God wants us to understand and apply. So number one, then, understanding the laws themselves. These laws can at first seem scattered and random. When I first read them, I just thought, oh my word, this is either going to be a really long message or incredibly short. You read it, thanks for coming, we go home. What in the world's going on? They don't appear to have anything in common with each other, but actually, they do. Because actually, these laws aren't scattered or random. They're divided into four very clear sections. Here's the first section. Laws about capital crimes. Verses 12 through 17. All laws relating into capital crimes. So verse 12, we have the capital crime of murder. Just going to briskly go through it. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. So real simple. You murder somebody, what's the consequence? You die. You get killed. You've taken that person's lifeblood, your lifeblood must be taken from you. Verse 13 and 14 then talks about exceptions to this rule. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. It's talking about the difference between meditated murder and not premeditated murder. So i.e. somebody gets into a bit of a fight, they don't mean to actually kill somebody, but they do kill somebody. What God does later on in the law is he creates six cities of refuge. So if you know, oh my gosh, that was an accident, didn't mean to do it, you can run to a city of refuge, you can stay there, and you can actually effectively appeal to the judges, listen, judge me, help me, I didn't do anything wrong. But if it was premeditated, you die. And even if you run to a city of refuge, and you're holding on, even maybe even to the very altar of God, it won't be enough to save you. If you're guilty, you will be killed for your crimes. Verse 15, it talks about parents. I love this one. Kids, listen up. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Merry Christmas. You know, at this time, (laughs) at this time in history, the whole point was mums and dads were God's representatives to you. They were the authority of God towards you. And when I say it was at this time, it still is at this time. The consequences just look a bit different. 
But in God understood that parents were given as the authority. They were given as God to you. And so if you struck them, and this wasn't just a strike. It wasn't like a little bit of a slap. It wasn't that. No, to strike here literally means to violently assault with intent. You were trying to kill your parents. And what God makes clear in that moment, if you have attempted to kill your parents, you will yourself be killed. In verse 16, then, we talks about stealing people. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. But Brendan did a wonderful job a few weeks ago talking about slavery and talking about how it differs in this time as it does, for example, the African slave trade. But what this is talking into is the African slave trade. It's making it clear if you just steal a man or a woman, that's wrong. You're stealing their life. And you want to know what the consequence of that is? You shall be killed. That's why the African slave trade in power was such an abomination. These people were claiming to Christians. It's like, did you not pay attention to chapter 21, verse 16? Whoever steals a man and sells him, that's what you've done, and found in possession of him, you still are, shall be put to death. Very clear. Slavery wasn't like this in the Old Testament. It's something that's quite a modern craze and understanding. Chapter verse 17, then it talks about parents again. I love this. Kids, once again. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Once again, your parents are God's authority to you, particularly when you are a younger age. And it's describing a scene here where a child curses the parents, i.e. disowns their parents and effectively wants to hand them over to God for his judgment. And what God says, listen, if you're going to do that, you're handing yourself over to judgment and you will be killed. So in verses 12 through 17, we have laws about capital crimes. It is the offense and what's going to happen if you commit a capital crime. Then in verses 18 through 27, we have laws about personal injury. What happens when somebody gets injured? Well, verse 18 and 19 talks about how what happens if somebody's injured in a fight. It says, when men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if a man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear, only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. All right, so here's the situation. Two people have been fighting. You go in and you fight with somebody. You didn't kill them, but you did put them in hospital. What's the consequence? Well, all the time that they can't walk, and even for the rest of their life, if they're walking with a stick for the rest of their life, you have to pay them. It was wrong what you did. Prison wasn't around at this time, okay? So it wasn't like, we're going to lock you up instead. No, what you had to do is make restitution. So you've cost them their livelihood. So you will pay for the rest of their lives. You will make restitution uh, with them. Same is true of injuring a slave. This is talking about the type of slave that Brendan was talking about a few weeks ago. Verse 20, when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. I.e., slaves, even our slaves, our bond servants that effectively were selling themselves into slavery to make money for the family, even though they're your property, you can't do to them anything you just want to do. You can't just strike them and kill them. Because if you kill them, you're going to get killed yourself. It is an abomination to treat somebody like that before the Lord. So it makes it clear the way it is to be. And then in verses 22 through 25, it talks about the consequences of injuring an unborn child. Pay attention. 
Our world is heavily laden now with abortion as the norm. Verse 22 to 25 addresses the unborn child. Where men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So it paints the picture of two men fighting. They're beating one another up. And maybe somebody's girlfriend or his wife, they come in, she's pregnant, and oh my gosh, accidentally she gets punched. And it causes harm to the child. And it makes it clear, listen, if there's actually ends up no harm to the child, then it's just a payment. It was wrong, and so you should pay for them. That, that's wrong. But if that child dies, you should die. Life for life. Tooth for tooth. In a culture and in a country where abortion is now just totally fine, God will look back and say, you know what the consequences of that sin is? You should die. Anybody involved in abortion, anybody committing abortions, God would look on at that and say, that is murder. And the consequences of that should be death. That's a kind of different perspective to what our governments tend to have today. Well, they then are all about the laws, about personal injury. Then we have in verses 28 through 36, laws about criminal negligence. It says in verse 28 and 29, talking about an ox, it says, when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall be put to death. The premise is, was it an accident or was it negligent? So i.e. if your ox goes and you know, gores somebody, but you've never really seen them do that before, and maybe somebody was panning on their head saying, good ox, good ox, and then it turns on them and kills them, well, that's not your fault, that's okay. But if your ox has had a bit of a history of doing this, and actually it tried to bite somebody the other day and tried to ram somebody against the wall just the other week, and somebody's been saying, you gotta watch that ox, buddy, and then it goes and kills somebody, then you yourself should be killed. That's the consequence for your crime. It was criminal negligence. That could have been avoided, but it wasn't because of you. We see in verses 30 to 34, then the same applies whether the ox kills a son or a daughter, a slave or a male or a female, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. If it's an accident, it's an accident, but if it's not an accident, then you must pay. And then in verse 35 to 36, we learn about what happens if an animal hurts another animal. It says, when one man's ox butts another's so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and shall its price, and the dead beast also shall, they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. Once again then, was it an accident or was it negligent? If it's an accident, i.e., you know, the ox butts another, they get into a bit of a scrap, you know, people do, oxes do, I suppose, they sort of beat each other up, and you didn't know it was coming, then, then so be it. 
The dead ox, yeah, it's really awkward, but you know, chop it in half, feed your families, feed your communities with the half. The live one, you're going to have to sell it and just divide the money. It was an accident. But if you knew that was going to happen, because your ox does this all the time, then the dead ox, well, that should, be owned, that should go to the person that owned it before. They should be able to use the entirety for, it, for their food and for their safekeeping. And the live ox, you should give them that as well. That's restitution. You go without, this could have been avoided, but they get the best. So that's laws about criminal negligence. And then finally, briefly, laws about personal property. Chapter 22, verses 1 through 15. This making a slightly more sense now? So verse 1, we have laws about basic theft. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Okay, fine. You steal something? You have to pay it back, and you pay it back plus more. We then see about breaking and entering in verse 2 and 3a. It says, If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. So here's the situation. Somebody breaks into your house. You're asleep. You're with your family. Somebody breaks into the house. You hear rustling downstairs. You do not say, dear, there's rustling downstairs. Go and have a look. You go. You step down there as the man of the house and you start to assess what is going on. And if it's in the dark and there's some tussling and this guy's dead, well, that's the way it goes. You're protecting your family. It's okay. But if the same thing happens in the day, you see the man coming and you shout, oi, get out. And he's running out. And you go to him anyway and stab him in the back as he's trying to get out. That's murder. You've murdered him. There was other options to you. So when the sun's up, it's your fault. When the sun's down, it's okay if things happen. They're trying to help us understand judicial law and the way things should work and things that should be taken into into our minds. Verse 5 then talks about property damage because of carelessness. If a man causes a field, a vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. So here's the situation. I've got a herd. Everybody had a herd. This is the way they lived. So many people, this was their livelihood. But all the different areas that you could graze would all be clearly marked out. But what if I'm a bit like negligent and I just let my herd sort of eat on your grass? Or they accidentally go into your vineyard and eat all the grapes or whatever it be. How does this play out? Well, not only should they get help, they should get restitution and it should be over above. So here's what you can't do. Your herd came into my vineyard and destroyed everything. Okay, no problem. Here's a few cabbages. Okay, then you can't do that. It was the best. And so you go back to your own crap and you say, okay, what is the best? Here, you should have this. It's restitution. It's like for like. We see the same in verse 6 and then all the way through 7 through 15. We see laws about borrowing and safe keeping, i.e. if you borrow things off people or you're keeping things safe for people and they die or things go on, it's because you've been negligent, then you should not only pay back, but you should pay back your best. All right, so here's the thing. These laws can appear random, but they're not. They're laws about capital crimes, laws about personal injury, laws about personal criminal negligence, and laws about personal property. 
So what can we learn from these laws today? See, this is where I hope you'll see the relevance of this text today. Because it is relevant. The Westminster Confession of Faith says, although these are not our laws per se, we do benefit from the general equity of these commandments. And it's so true. These are not our laws today per se, but the general equity, the principles and themes that they're grounded on and that they work through in our lives, they still count very much towards today. And it's when you figure that out that even these laws can change your life. So what are the themes? What are the principles? Well, I submit to you there's two. And if we can understand these, we'll understand the profound difference they make to our lives. See, the first thing, the first part of general equity, the first theme and principle that is so clearly in these laws is this. The reality that life is precious. This whole thing is undergirded with that one central truth, that one bedrock truth that life, all of it, is wonderfully precious. Life has value and dignity and worth. See, if life doesn't have value and dignity and worth, if life isn't precious, then you may as well just let go to society and say, go for your life. Do whatever you want. Kill each other. Do whatever you want to do. Steal whatever you want to steal because it doesn't matter. Who, who is somebody else to say you can't do that? If you're bigger than them, smack their head in, whatever. Who are you to say your life is more precious than theirs? No, nobody's life is precious. It's the Hunger Games in real life. It's everybody just free to do whatever they want to do because no individual life actually has value. So if life isn't precious, if life has no value, then we should go for our lives and do whatever we want to do. But if life does have value and dignity and worth, you know what we need? We need laws. Laws to protect life. Laws to value life. Laws to contain what God has done. And my friends, the reason why life has value and dignity and worth is because each and every human being that ever lived and ever will has been gloriously made in the image of God himself. Everybody. Every individual. Made in the image of God. See, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 27, we see the Godhead Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the first time in the Bible actually talking to one another and working out, hey, what are we going to do? This is what we read. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. My friends, that's why life has value. Life doesn't have value because we're all just really nice people and therefore should be valued. Life has value because the creator of the world says, I gave you value and the value I gave you was that I've made you in my image. So slave and free, young and old, man and woman, Jew and Gentile, whatever your tribe, whatever your language, whatever your nation, you all have value because you've been made in the image of God himself. And that's the reason then why all of life is duly valued and protected in these laws. Because life has value. 
And what you see in these texts is every, every life has value. It starts then in verse 22 with the unborn child. Look at it again. Don't look away. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined. As the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay. Life for life. See, the Bible's clear that God knitted us together in our mother's womb. Society is growingly helping us to see, no, he didn't. It's just the potential for life. No. God looks back at the creator and says, that ain't no potential for life. That is life. And unless you stop it, it will be a baby that is born. Because I'm the one knitting it together in his mother's womb. But if you stop it, that's murder. And so life for life. Tooth for tooth. Eye for eye. See, we need to be reformed as Christians and understand what God's word says, not what society is telling us. What is the value that God puts on life? Well, he so protects life that before a child is even born, he says, protect that. You must protect that. Because that's a life. It's a life that I'm busy knitting together in its mother's womb even now. And throughout the rest of these laws, what you realize is God is busy protecting all of life. Man or woman, young or old, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. Everybody has instinct value being made in the image of God and therefore should be protected. Philip Ryken in his wonderful commentary on Exodus says it this way. He says, what these laws show is that people who don't always count to us always count to God. The innocent bystander who is struck with a violent blow, the child ripped from his mother's womb, the slave beaten by his master, all of these people deserve special care. The fetus is not a mass of tissue. The slave is not a piece of property. We are all made in the image of God. Since we all need protection... We all need to protect one another. And whenever anyone is harmed, justice should be done. Now, wonderful. These whole laws are built on the premise that life is precious. So life should be protected. The first great theme then that you understand from these laws is simply that, that life is precious. And the second is this. Lex talianis. It's Latin. It simply means that the punishment should fit the crime. You see, we all instinctively know, having been made in the image of God, we all instinctively understand justice, don't we? Each and every one of us, we naturally and instinctively understand justice, that if it's right, it's right, if it's wrong, it's wrong, there has to be consequences for things. No one teaches us that, that's what we just get. You know what no one teaches us that? Because you are made in the image of God, and we serve a just God, which is why it's already there in your heart and your being. That's why we're designed the way we are. We all instinctively understand justice. And yet, in our sinfulness, our application of justice can sometimes be a little bit off the mark. Have you noticed that? If you're a parent, you will understand whatever I mean. Because here's what happens. Your kid, yet again, is drawing on the wall. Yet again, is trying to kill the dog. 
yet again is not tied to their room, and yet again is swearing at their brother, yet again. And so here's what you do, you stand up and you say, that's it, I'm gonna kill them. Seems a little bit much, doesn't it really? I mean, yes, they're doing some things, but kill them, it seems a bit out of kill. And I think we're all a bit naturally like that. Things, we're affected by things, and our response wants to be swift. It wants to be bold. You've wronged me, that's it. You are grounded for 13 years. That's, what's, that's, what, that's our instinctive response. And so what God does right here is he gives us lex talionis, i.e. the idea that the punishment should fit the crime. We see it in verse 23. Verse 24, but if there is harm, then you shall pay. How? Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. See, it's talking strictly about how we're to respond to the effect on an unborn child from a pregnant lady. But actually, when you pay attention to that text, you realize this plays into them all. It covers the entirety of the law and all the commandments. Lex talionis, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. When things go wrong, there has to be consequence, but that consequence, that punishment, should fit the crime. See, we must understand that this wasn't always applied literally, all right? It is true that if you killed someone, then you would be killed yourself. You would be put to death. That is true. But for many of the other things mentioned in that statement, it wasn't always administered literally. Okay, you poke somebody's eye out. Come here, I'm going to poke your eye out. You burn somebody. All right, light up the fire, kids. You know, that's not the way it quite worked. It was a principle, a theme, though, that the punishment should fit the crime. It wasn't always applied literally, but it was applied as a principle. And you must understand as well, it wasn't designed as an expression of cruelty. In fact, actually, it was quite the opposite. Lex Talionis was designed by God to prevent personal vengeance and to prevent excessive punishment. It was designed to stop those things. And when you think about it, what's the alternative? An eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth? It's a smash your face in for an eye or kill you for a tooth. We would go far beyond it when we feel wronged. So what God does is he curtails that. He says, no, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for life. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 5 something that many of you would be aware of. In Matthew chapter five, he quotes this. And he says, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And you can be aware of that and you can wrongly assume, well, you heard it was said, but obviously it doesn't count anymore. That's just Old Testament stuff. It's all different. That's not what he means at all. What he's saying is, listen, you heard it was said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But here's the problem. You guys are using this as an excessive means of personal vengeance, you're going to get cited when something happens to somebody because you can go and really hurt them. And that's not the way it was meant to be. Love your enemies. Pray for them. But it's still true when people have done wrong, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He's reframing it for them. Not being about personal vengeance, but instead being about justice and righteousness before the Lord, that the punishment should fit the crime. This law then wasn't always applied literally, and it certainly wasn't a cruel law. It was all about moderation and justice. 
But make no mistake, it was the reason why one and a half thousand years on from this text being written, Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, was hanging in a bloody mess on a cross at a place called Calvary. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life. See, my friends, the Bible's clear that God actually made us. For each and every one of us in the room, he, he made us. Psalm 139, it was him that knitted us together in our mother's womb. He was the one that formed our inward parts. You know what he made you for? He made you to find your identity and your joy and your purpose in him. He's allowed to do that. He's the creator of all. You are his. And so he designed you that way so that you would find your joy in him. And he knew that the best thing he could give you is joy in him. He is a wonderful God, gracious and merciful and slow to anger. He wants to bless us again and again and again. He wants to be with us as a loving and profound father. The best thing that could ever happen to any individual in this room is to know God genuinely for yourself. And yet, you, like me, didn't want to do that. Thanks for creating me. I'm going to live my life now. It's all about me. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I'm going to live my best life now. Your rules, I definitely don't like them. They just seem harsh. No way. I don't want to speak to you. I don't want to worship you. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to enjoy creation. I'm going to enjoy all that you made. And the only time I'm going to return to you is to do this, to let you know how you suck because you're allowing all this suffering in the world. How dare you? Each and every one of us have exchanged the creator for the created. Instead of finding our identity and our joy and our worship and our purpose in the true one that deserves it, we find it in his creation, but we can't quite find it, so we blame him for everything that goes wrong. The Bible makes it clear then we are by very nature objects of his wrath. Why? It seems a bit harsh. I thought he was a God of love and mercy and grace. True, but he's also a God of holiness and justice. The very justice that you're aware of in your heart when you see somebody getting a consequence because of a crime and you think, that is right. Times that by a trillion for God. You're made in his image, but you are not God. He is just and holy. And so he can't just look on at our rebellion and just say, oh, well, never mind, don't worry about it. We're an object of his wrath. And because of that, we're cut off from him now, and one day we'll be cut off from him for all eternity. And that should make sense. Because as non-Christians, that's what we wanted, right? I don't want to follow you, God. I'm not interested in you. So God turns around and says, no problem. You won't have me then for the rest of your eternity. God could have left us in that situation as an object of his wrath, but he didn't. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Isn't it amazing? God so loved the world, he so loved you, that he sent his only begotten Son on the greatest rescue mission of all time. He saw us. He saw value in us as human beings being made in his image. He sees our rebellion running a long way from him. So he runs after you. 
And he says, I so love you that I'm gonna send my son to die in your place. The ultimate consequences of sin is death. I'm gonna send him to the cross to die for you. A life for a life, I will send you a life. I will send you in a way of escape. And at the cross, Jesus Christ took the lex talionis for us. An eye for an eye. Tooth for tooth. Life for life. And he made it possible then that if we put our faith in him as our, as our Lord and Savior, that we'd be forgiven of our sin. That we'd be adopted into the very family of God, redeemed to him to know heaven is our home. The cross is a scandal of grace. But that's what he came to do. To die is your lex talionis. To die in your place. An eye for an eye. A tooth for a tooth. A life for a life so that you could be forgiven of your sin. So how then should we respond just in closing? Well, this text, I think when you understand it like that, you realize it does indeed desire for us then to respond, does it not? Here's the first response. We respond, I believe, with great gratitude towards the Lord. And if this text does not make you happy, I got nothing that will ever make you smile. This is staggering realities. You were dead in your transgressions and sin. You were a sinner before the Lord. You were in bondage and chains before the Lord. You were guilty as charged. But he saved you. J.I. Packer then says it this way. He says, to know that from eternity my maker, for seeing my sin, for loved me and resolved to save me, though it would be at the cost of Calvary, to know that the divine son was appointed from eternity to be my savior. And then in love, he became man for me and died for me and now lives to intercede for me and will one day come in person to take me home. To know that the Lord who loved me and gave himself up for me and who came and preached peace to me through his messengers has by his spirit raised me from spiritual death to life-giving union and communion with himself and has promised to hold me fast and never let me go. This, listen, this is knowledge that brings me overwhelming, overwhelming gratitude and joy. My friends, if this does not make you grateful and joyful, I've got nothing else to tell you <laughs> because this is as good as it gets. You were dead you were guilty as charged. You were an object of his wrath, but now you've been forgiven of your sin, adopted into a relationship with God, reconciled to him. You know for sure heaven is your home and he did it all by coming after you on the greatest rescue mission ever told. If that doesn't cultivate at least a warming in your heart towards, yes, thank you, then I don't know what you're doing or what you're looking at. This is staggering truth. It is why I believe fundamentally Christians should be the most joyful people you encounter ever. That doesn't mean our lives are all glowing all the time. It doesn't mean that you know, nothing ever goes wrong. It does. Sure, sparks fly upwards, troubles fall. They do. But when you interact with a Christian, you should nonetheless come along, you could come alongside somebody thinking, man, there is something joyful going on in their heart. Why? Well, because I was dead in my transgressions and sins. I was a sinner before the Lord. I was once upon a time an object of his wrath. 
But now I stand here forgiven of my sin. I've been reconciled to God. I know I'm a savior and redeemer as friend. I've been adopted into his very family and heaven is gonna be my home. It's scandalous, I know, you know me. But it's possible because of what Jesus Christ did in my place. And because of that, I will worship him and give thanks to him and be joyful each and every day of my life. Even if there is trouble, they will be light and momentary because one day I will stand before him and I will say, thank you. This is what it was all about, being with you. My friends, seen correctly, this text that appears at first glance irrelevant becomes a highway to Calvary. And that's when you start giving thanks. You fulfilled all these things for me. Every last one of them. And then you died for me so that I may have life. The way we respond, I think, is with great gratitude towards the Lord. And number two, with great assurance before the Lord. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. He said, our greatest temptation and mistake is to try and smuggle character into God's work of grace. Sovereign Grace, listen carefully. I think he's right. When a theologian says our greatest temptation and mistake, you want to pay attention because we can make many mistakes. We can have many temptations. He tells us here our greatest temptation and mistake is to try and smuggle character into God's work of grace. It's so true. We can so wrongly think in our lives, and I know it because I could be tempted to do exactly the same thing. We can so wrongly start to think that my performance is what makes me acceptable to God. And we're particularly susceptible to that when we're in and around the Ten Commandments. When you go into gospel communities and you're talking about lying, oh yeah, that's me. Murder, didn't think it was me. Dave, help me see it was me. It's, all, it's everything to me. It's all me. It can be so tempting and so easy in that moment to smuggle in our works and our behavior, thinking it's my behavior that makes me acceptable before the Lord. It doesn't. None of it does. You are acceptable before the Lord for one reason and one reason alone, and that reason is not your performance. It is not your application of the Ten Commandments. You're acceptable before the Lord because of the finished work of Jesus Christ in your place. Full stop. Don't be tempted to smuggle in your works, your behavior, thinking, but if I can just, you know, be better at telling the truth all the time, God will accept me more. No, he won't. (laughs) You're as accepted now as you always will be because the cross bridged the gap. That's all you needed. Jesus has paid it all. So as Mr. D. Dixon then tells us, for I have taken all my good deeds and all my bad and cast them in a heap before the Lord and fled from both. And I have instead betaken myself to the Lord Jesus Christ and in him I have a sweet peace. My friends, I pray that that would be the lasting fruit of this text. That we would take all our good deeds and all our bad deeds and cast them in a heap before the Lord And instead realize, Lord, I stand here forgiven and justified and adopted, not because of my performance, but because of yours. You fulfilled these commands in my place. I am grateful and I am assured. And with all glory then go to him. My friends, this text can appear at first irrelevant. 
But when you look again, you realize it has more to say than you think. Live in the good of it. Live assured. Live grateful. And with all glory go to him. Let's pray. Lord, your word is wonderful. Lord, even parts of it where we look on to start off with and wonder how on earth it has anything to do with us, it always does. We just need to look deeper and listen harder. Jesus, thank you for dying in our place. Thank you for fulfilling the commands in our place. Thank you that it is not our performance that makes us acceptable before the Father. It's your performance. It's what you did. So Lord, help us to live in the good of that. Help us to always stand in wonder of the cross. And with that, motivate us each and every day of our lives towards humility, towards assurance, towards gratitude, towards true worship of you. You are a wonderful King and a wonderful Saviour. And may all glory go to you. Amen.